0: She, she says this at the end. She says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. And then here's the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So you take those three la- phrases there judge the ends of the earth, give strength to his king, exalt the horn of his anointed. And then you go to the end of the book, right? And it's three series of s- s- stories kind of going back and forth, doing the same thing. Does that make sense? It's like when you when you realize that, you realize, man, it looks jumbled. It looks a little random. But actually, the author of Scripture was very intentional and careful in, in crafting these things and putting together. It's, this is not random. It actually has a very specific purpose. And of course, my goal is to kind of lay that out for you at least over the next few weeks, because I can't preach all four of these chapters at once. Well, I could, but you don't want me to do that. Um, uh, so we're going to look at the first story and the last story together. We're going to look at the two stories on God's judgment this morning. And then next week, we'll look at the middle two stories. And the last week, we'll look at those, those uh, Psalms of David, in a sense. And, and so uh, that's, the goal here is to help you think this through. Because in a sense, you have David, uh, Hannah saying, Hey, we're looking for a king even when like no one was looking for a king, and here at the end we have God's king being exalted, being provided for, God judging, and yet there's this sense of, but it's not there yet, right, because we realize that David failed, like David's not the king, he's not the one we're looking for, Um, and so in some ways the first three stories are, are looking back, at what God did in the past to exalt David, and the next three stories are are more looking forward, like, okay, what's it going to look like? What are we looking for in a king, really? And in the midst of that, you, you, you have the, the idea of we're looking, what, is Solomon going to fulfill this, right? There's the, the open question, and that's why the book ends there, in a sense. But it also has the idea of, what, what king does fulfill this, and, and we're going to get into that um, when we get to that section of the passage. So um, this is, the, this first, the, these stories on God's judgment are difficult because we're dealing with the judgment of God over sin, and, and, and yet the whole thing hinges on God's treatment and God's interaction with his king, and so the, the big idea this morning, if I can get back to is that the story looks back and shows God's faithfulness and points forward, points forward and, and clues us into the direction he's going. And so the direction he's going is you should de- delight in having a beautifully good king. You should delight in having a beautifully good king. That's, that's my big idea. And I'll, we'll walk through the, this, this, the stories this morning and then get to the application at the end. So... Um, so, so let's just jump into the text here a little bit in 2 second Samuel, Second Samuel 21. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. Now, you think, well, this is random. Why does he seek God when there's a famine going on? But in Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy is this covenant between Israel and God, that God would be their king, that he would take care of them, he would provide for them, and he would bless them if they kept his word, and he would curse him if they didn't keep his word. And in the curses, it talks about in Deuteronomy 28, it it says this, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under your you shall be iron. The Lord will make the the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now this is under the curses section and and the curses section is there to to say, hey, you need to repent and come back to God. It's not there to just say you're done. It's, It's designed to get them to come back to God but he's just saying, hey, there are consequences to breaking the covenant that you've made with God. He's going to be your God, you're going to be his people, and he's going to protect you and provide for you. Then he there's certain things you need to do in return. Um, and so it just... It, this is a part of why David then goes to God and says, God, what's going on? And the Lord answers, the Lord says, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he has put the Gibeonites to death. Now the Gibeonites, if you know the story, right, they, they, when Joshua and the nation of Israel came into the land of Canaan and were conquering it, the Gibeonites realized, hey, this is not something you want to mess with. And so they deceived Israel by thinking they were a long way away, coming to make peace with Israel, when they were just right next to them in a sense, and they Joshua made a promise to them that he wouldn't destroy them, that he wouldn't conquer them, but they could live where they lived and and have peace in their land, and uh, and uh, so they kept that. But evidently, here God's explained that that Saul did not keep that. Um. And so there's more explanation here, verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not part of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the, of the Amorites, right? So again, just, it doesn't tell you the whole story, but it reminds you that they're not really part of the people of Israel. That's important to the story. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them back in Joshua's day, Saul had sought to strike them down in, the, in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So evidently, this isn't recorded other places in Scripture, but evidently in his zeal to unite the people of Israel and protect the people of Israel, he had um, sought to, to wipe out the Gibeonites. I'm, just to maybe give you a comparison here, it'd be uh, like Puerto Rico for us, right? At some point, we decided, you know what? We don't like the Puerto Ricans anymore. We're going to wipe them out, okay? Okay. Uh, You're like, why would we do that? I have no reason why we would think to do that, but that it's that kind of comparison. They're not part of our country, but they're under our protection, and yet we decide to wipe them out. Why would we do that? But Saul evidently thinks, hey, they're not part of our people. We're going to wipe them out, and God's like, that wasn't right. So you think, you think, think genocide here, right? Think that's the level of problem that they had. I don't know how it happened or how it played out, that the details are, are not given to us, but it's that level of problem. Saul thinks in his, in his uh, twisted holiness, I've got to wipe out anybody that's not not supposed to be in the land, that's not Israelite, and he forgets the promises of God. And, and of course, when you run into texts like this, you have just I mean, this is a part of the question, but it's a question we have when we run into the text, is, is okay, well, how do, how do you deal with these kind of issues? How do you deal with the problem of evil? And how could a good God let something like this happen? But there's a flip side to that that I think is actually very important to ask, and it is the problem of past evil, Okay. The problem of past evil is what's going to be done about the, the, the evils that have been done in the past? W- what about them? How are you going to deal with them? Because evidently, like, the problem with the Gibeonites was just, like, it had been forgotten about, right? So it was one of those things Saul did, and, and, and it was done, and it was past. How are you going to deal with the past issues in our world? Like, for instance, how do you deal with... Uh, World War II and the genocide of the Jews, the Holocaust, right? Is it, is it justly taken care of? Is it, is it really solved? Or what do you, what do, you do with, with slavery? What do you, is it justly solved? Is that taken care of? How do you know when justice has been done? And the problem is, is that if the real problem is, is this isn't really a problem for Christianity. This is a problem for other ways of thinking, Right? because Christianity says, you know what, we believe in a just God who rules over the, the world and ultimately will solve evil. We don't, we can't, we don't know how because we, we're not God, but he promises to ultimately conquer evil, conquer death. But if you're an atheist, what you're going to say is, well, we just need to get better at solving those problems. there's a a, a side of it that says we're not, you know, we're not going to just wait for problems to get solved. We're going to try to solve problems, which is good. That side of it's okay. But you can't solve some of these things. The The only way atheism can solve it is, hey, in the future, we'll do a better job, or we'll take more control. We won't let certain things happen. To me, if you're an atheist... You're saying after World War II, you're saying we're not gonna let certain things like this happen again. We're in 2020. They're still happening. North Korea is still a problem. Other places around the world, there's genocides happening and and slavery happening, and this is this is not going away. Evil is still evil, and it's still happening. What are you going to do? In other, other religions, they want to handle it in some ways by saying, like, like Buddhism, Hinduism, they're going to try to say, you just don't worry about those things, just, just take care of yourself. Just get yourself okay, you know, mentally. Don't, just, just get rid of your desires and, and just be fine with life and whatever comes at you. But it doesn't solve the problem. How do you deal with evil? We're talking about past evil. Now you can say we're going to stop evil right now and never, no more evil is going to happen from this point forward. Well, what about all the past stuff? And this is where judgment, justice, comes in. You have to have the concept of judgment and justice in order to solve the problem of past evil. And in the midst of, of thinking about this, this is again a kind of presupposition of Christianity, of the Bible, that 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 evil has happened and it needs to be taken care of and that there is a god who rules over the world who will take care of it who will execute judgment and here in this passage god is is saying i'm going to take care of this problem right now or i'm going to at least alert you that there's a problem here with the Gibeonites." and just again i just want to help us think this through because i think this is a hard thing We, we question this a lot when we think about judgment, we have this tension, okay? This tension when we deal, we're dealing with evil between what's good for the community or the clan or the family and what's good for the individual. You're like, okay, how do you solve this if what's good for us versus what's good for you? And there's a tension that's there, it's not readily solved. Think of the Ten Commandments, okay? I just, let's just, if we're talking about evil, maybe it's a good way to kind of get it concrete here. So just take a couple of the Ten Commandments. First of all, the Sabbath. God commands his people to to rest, and we believe in the New Testament we don't have to keep a specific day, but we are commanded to rest, to rest in Christ. So so you say, well, if I get too busy, what's the big deal? Actually, it's a pretty big deal because you're saying, I've got to provide for myself. I'm the sole provider for my life. And if I don't stay busy, then, then nothing happens to my life. When actually God is the provider for your life. He's the one who provides for you. And if you step aside for that and you're like, I've got to stay busy and productive and it's all about my productivity, you're actually turning away from God. And it's hurting yourself but it also hurts others. Or just the simple idea of, of lying, for instance. Now, right, self-confession time, I sometimes, it's, it's easy to lie and to make yourself look good, right? Maybe you're not in this category with me, but I like to look good to other people. And so, so you have this desire, like, I want to... So think about it for a second. If, if, this, if we're talking about not just relationship with someone else, but our relationship with God... God's made us to, to not be the ultimate ones, to not be the ones that ultimately look good. So so, we, so in a situation, say I lie to make myself look good. What, what happens with that? Well, two things. One, God's looking down at me going, <laughs> wait a second, I thought you wanted me, you were supposed to make me look good, not you look good. And you could have done that in this situation. I've got a problem with you now because you've made yourself look good rather than me. But not only that, but you've made yourself look good to the other person in that situation when my design for the situation was that they would walk away recognizing that they could put their trust in me, that I looked good in the situation, and that you didn't. And that that would build up their faith and their trust in me, their, their sense that I was adequate when you didn't do that. You built up this sense that you were adequate, that you were good, that you were great, so now not's God's, God's got a problem with you not just because you broke the relationship with him but also because you broke your the other person's relationship with him. And what if that person then is gets depressed because they're like I'm never going to be as good as Will. I'm never going to have everything all together like he's got it all together and so I might as well just, you know, give up on life. You're like people wouldn't do that. I get right I get it. They shouldn't do it if they just look at me. Okay. But 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 That's the point though, right? Is we all, we're all looking to someone and thinking, they're great, they've got it all together, they're good, when God's like, no, I'm the one who provides, I'm the one who helps, I'm the one who has it all together. So the the problem, you say, well, it's just a little lie, but no, it broke the relationship with God, it it hurt someone else, that person could go on and they might decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to give up on life, and they're not going to do any good with, with their lives after that, because again, because of what I, my lie, or Or they could decide, hey, you know, maybe I've got to have it all together too, and then they hurt everyone around them trying to have it all together. I'm just digging this out a little bit because I think we need to flesh it out. Why is sin sin? What's the problem? What's a little lie to make yourself look good? I mean, why is God so upset? Why would he judge something like that? Well, this is the reason why, because evil happens, but it has consequences and keeps going. And when you have evil that keeps going, how do you deal with it? What do you do? That's where justice is a very important concept. You have to rectify things. You have to set things right. If you don't do it, if you just let sin happen, then things fall apart. I say, I still don't see... How this? Why this is such a big deal? Well, let me let me put it to you this way. So, if you're a parent, you understand. will understand this. If you're not, imagine you're a parent for a second. You have a child. It's, it's three years old. It's just starting to get to know you. You're just able to talk to it. You're able to to give it information and 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 show love to him or her. And and then someone kidnaps that child takes that child and lies to it and says, the father and parents you used to have weren't your parents. I'm your parent now. Look how great I am. Look how much I provide for you. Look how much I'm I'm, I'm good to you. That parent over there, they weren't good to you, and they lie to your child after kidnapping and try to replace you in that child's life with themselves. Now, if someone did that to my child, I would be extremely upset (laughs) to the point of seeking justice, you know. But that's what we do with God's children when we lie to them and say, look at me, don't look at God. (laughs) That's what we do. And it's important to, to understand this kind of concept because God is... God is dealing with these kinds of things. He's dealing with these kinds of evils, and you're like, well, how can God do it? How, I mean, why does he just wipe us all out and start over if this is such a, because he's also merciful. He wants to to bring us back. He wants to restore us to himself. He's not interested in just getting justice. Look how great I am. He's wanting to bring us into his family. And this is what is being wrestled with here when you're dealing with a genocide situation that God is unhappy with. He's like, that was not right. This needs to be restored. And we're going to see that it's not fully restored, and you're going to see why here as we walk through this, but, but it's that desire for God as king saying, I've got to restore, I've got to seek justice, that without a God who remembers and who seeks justice we would never have justice. Notice what happens. So David goes to the Gibeonites and says, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? He's saying, I need to atone for this wrong. How is it, David, how is it possible to do that? But he's, he goes to the place where he, in a sense, he should go. He goes to the Gibeonites. How, how do you think I should atone for this wrong? I mean, you're the ones who are injured. You're the ones who are hurt. How does that work? The gibeonites said to him, "It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it up to us to put any man to death in Israel. They're like, you can't pay us enough money. Nor can we kill people. It's not. We're not in charge of that." And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she had borne to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, another Mephibosheth, and the sons of Merab and the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahathalite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death on the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day, the Philistines killed Saul and Gilboa, and he brought up from there the, the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father, and they did, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. First of all, I want you. I want you to notice a couple things. One, you notice you notice that they ask for seven sons, and the seven sons are killed. But also notice Riz Rizpah's honor, right? She goes and she protects the body. It's a horrific scene, if you think about it. This is, and this doesn't, isn't just like one, two days. This is probably a couple of months during the barley harvest, where she guards their bodies from the birds and, and stays with them. I don't want, it's just, but, but the, it's, it's, it's the horrificness of the scene, but it's also the, the honor. Like, she loved her sons. She loved them. And and uh, and that's important because when you're talking about atonement, what's interesting here, in my opinion, is it's, it's, it's not just Saul's, like, they're, they're so negative. All of Saul's family are just so bad. They're so awful, right? It's like, which is what we tend to do when we are like, we need to get rid of the bad guy. We make the bad guy the bad guy, right? Where here, it's like, no, there's honor in Saul's family. There's honor in... in 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 Saul's in, in what Saul did in the past. He did some good things, and his sons deserve honor too. And so th- there's this balancing act, in a sense, of honoring Saul, even as you take care of, of the Gibeonites' revenge or, or sense of, of justice. I also want you to notice that just the destruction of a bad king, right? The, the, a bad king can do some pretty bad things. But notice. I think this is important because it goes into the next story that we'll look at but notice she the rain didn't come once they were killed the, the, the rain didn't come once you know the harvest was over and and just the natural weather patterns of life it, the emphasis here is and they did all that the king commanded and after that God responded to the plea for the land okay the point is David David's this intersection between uh, God and the people uh, resolving the problem and and making atonement for the problem. Probably the the biggest thing that you're supposed to get out of this story is the ugliness of atonement. This is an ugly, ugly scene that stands for days, probably months, Solving evil is not a pretty thing. And, and there's a question that comes to, to bear here. Do, do children pay for their parents' sins? Do, do children pay for, the, like, uh, the, like, my dad sinned, and therefore I have, to, I have to pay for his sin? And the Bible is clear here. The Bible is clear. Children do not pay for their parents' sins. It's not like God is angry with you because your dad messed up. It's not how it works. If you want to read something about that, you go to Ezekiel 17 and 18. God's very clear on on that. At the same time, you have this tension where, again, your children do suffer because of the consequences of your sin at times. There is suffering that results from sin. And so you have these two issues, again, that God is seeking to resolve, and that is that, that there is... There's the sin that needs to be resolved, and there's suffering that results from it. And, and how does this all work? Again, what, what I want you to notice in this story, before we get to the next story, is that this is a story with, with the people of Israel, with people who are outsiders. They're not really part of the people of Israel. It's, notice, notice the difference here, is they didn't go to God saying, okay, God, how do, we, how do you want us to resolve this? They went to the Amorites, you have a certain code and ethic for resolving problems, and the Amorites said, this is how we want to resolve it, and David said, okay. It wasn't, it wasn't like the Amorites went to God and said, God, we've been sinned against, how should we resolve this, what should we do, okay? I, I want that to be clear, because I, I don't think you should say, okay, God caused Saul's sons to be killed. No, that's, that's not, that line of causation is not there in the text, it is true that it needed to be resolved, and David took an ugly situation and did the best he could to resolve it. Why is that important? Well, let's, let's go to the second story, because these two stories are supposed to be seen in juxtaposition with each other, and I think it's important to see that. So 2 Samuel 24, Looking at God's judgment again, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Judah, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God and... Add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the king eyes of the Lord my king will see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and onto Jezer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh and the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they, just, they, they covered all the land is the point. They get the number. It's 800,000 in Israel, 500,000 in, in Judah who are able to draw the sword. That is, they're able to fight if they're needed to fight. Then verse 10, but God, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So D- Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall three years of famine come to you? Or will three months, uh, will you three, three months your foes while they are pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I should return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pass on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, then David spoke to the Lord, whom, he, whom when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these, peop, these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded, and when Rana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him, and Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground, and Arana said, why has my lord, the king, come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order that, to build an altar to the Lord that the, the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. I mean, wouldn't you, if you were like David's like, hey, uh, I need to stop the plague and I need to offer an offering on your land, and you'd be like, Hey, the plague's gonna get stopped if you do that? Here's here's all my stuff. Go do it, right? I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Then uh, Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So notice a few few challenges to this text. First of all, God incites David to sin. God's like, I want to judge Israel. I'm angry with Israel. You say, well, why is God angry with Israel? It's not clear. I mean, again, this whole story, this whole series of stories, there's not, the timing is not very clear. There's some stories that are obviously later in David's reign, but then it's it's hard to to know exactly how the timing of these stories. But one obvious sin of Israel is that they rebelled against David, right? (laughs) They said, we want Absalom. And David never really judged them for that. I mean, he he defeated those against him, but he never really judged Israel for saying, yes, we want a, a different king. It could be as simple as God is angry with them for rejecting his, his king. Um, it could be something else. That, uh, the, we know from Israel's history that the Israelites still worshipped other gods during this time. They weren't, there was, there was no temple. In fact, this is a story about where the temple is going to be placed. Um, but but there's, we don't know the whole thing, but it's obvious in a sense that, that God, there's some very obvious answers is, is the point. But the point is, is that God's like, you know what? I'm angry with Israel. I want David to mess up. You say, That's a, what? That's a question. What is that there? Then, again, we're back to David's pride in numbers, and Joab, of all people, is like, don't do this. And David's like, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, And we're back to these external power, you know, external symbols of power, right? Like, if I have the biggest army, I'm going to win, right? When we know that God wins battles, not, not numbers. But David gets caught up in that, and just like 1 Samuel, the ark is brought out. And there's so many examples in First and 2 Samuel of this kind of thinking that we all fall into at times where we get caught up in some, some external indicator of success. Like, this will give me success and if I don't have it. then I'm in trouble. Another another kind of key point to the story, right, is that David, what, how David's response when he's given his options, David goes to God, said, God, I've sinned. I, I realize this is the wrong way of approaching this. And, and God's like, well, here's your three options, and David says, well, option number two, where I fall in the hand of man, I don't want that, but ultimately, I just want your mercy. <laughs> Whatever's the most, uh, most merciful option, God, I'll take it, because I, I, it's, again, we're back to this understanding that David seems to have of God, that, they, that God ultimately is a merciful God, <laughs> That in even though he judges and is just in his in how he deals with evil, yet he's a merciful God. And he's like, God, I'm going to just trust your mercy. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to think about. Uh, but then the last kind of thing I want to point out is that David then doesn't offer him something that costs nothing. And as we look at the thing, the thing here, I think the key idea from both stories, right, is that God interacts with the king when he wants to judge. And I just want you to see a few things here. Um, okay, yeah, wait, 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 wait. Did I get this? Is this up there? Yeah, there, okay. You might not be able to read this, so I'll read it for you. I, I, I wanted to get them all up here at one time. The king operates on behalf of the people. The king operates on behalf of the people. There's this, this, this is the way God is setting it up. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm operating with the king in between you and me. The king provides for you and protects you both from your enemies, but also, and I just want to point this out, didn't Christ become sin for us? David became sin for his people and so Christ becomes sin for us, right? He, he takes our sin upon himself. Now, David had a sin of his own, That's the, but Christ had no sin, but he took our sin. And then he deals with the wrath of God for the people. Christ was the propitiation for his sins. He satisfies God's wrath himself by dying on the cross. The king atones and pays the price for the people. He doesn't offer something that costs him nothing. Christ you think about it, the, the body that Christ had wasn't that important. He was, he, but the fellowship that he had with God the Father from eternity past, he was willing to let that be ripped apart. He screams on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's willing to let that be ripped apart. Why? So that we could be at peace with God. So he paid that price for us. And then the king releases God's blessing through the land on the people. The the emphasis in both stories is God responded to the plea for the land. God, we know that the land is the way you bless us. You give us food and and water and shelter and help. And we know the land is there to to take care of us. But it's, 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 it's broken. The relationship is broken right now. And again, the king restores that relationship. And doesn't Christ do that ultimately for us one day? He's going to restore the purpose of creation, to do good to God's people. We're going to live in peace and harmony and justice. Now. That's not in the text. That's what we know for the future. But the text is pointing toward this. The text is saying, you should be looking for this kind of king. A king who is willing to become sin for the people. The king who's willing to deal with the wrath of God's people. The wrath of God for his people. The king who was willing to pay the price to atone. That's the direction the text is saying. He's saying, this is what you should look for in a king. And David and Solomon weren't those kings. But Jesus is that king. And as you as you think about that, here's just two points I want you to consider, and just kind of wrapping it up. One, you should remember God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. He's a rock. He doesn't change. He he deals with evil. He doesn't let evil just continue. We have Revelation twenty right. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw that dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another was book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was in the books according to what they had done. God is going to deal with evil. He is. And the seed gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Say, how do you escape God's judgment? By having a king who puts his name, who puts your name in his book. So, we're back to you should delight in God's king because he will cling to God's mercy and satisfy God's wrath on your behalf. We need a king. The, the, the point of both of these stories is to say judgment is ugly. Judgment is messy, it's, it's awful, it's it's horrible. But if you have a king, he can take care of it for you. The question is, do you want a king? And if I'm being honest, I don't always want a king, right? I kind of want to solve my problems myself. You know, if my wife and I have a disagreement or she's telling me, hey, you did something wrong, I want to be like, I'll solve it. I'm good, I, I'm a man. I'll solve my own problems, right? I don't want a king. So I'm looking at life and, and dealing with issues and trying to plan my life. I don't want someone else telling me what to do. I don't want to go to Jesus and be like, Jesus, what, what, what should I do today? I want to be like, I know what I want to do today, and I'm going to try to do it. I don't want a king. I want to be the king. <laughs> the problem is, I do wrong things. I've done wrong things. Things that I can't make up for. Things that I can't solve. I need a king. And and the beauty of this king is instead of being hung, he was hung on a tree. And the ugliness of that sight is beauty because he willingly went there for me and for you to take away our sin, to take away our guilt, to take away all the judgment and justice that should pour out on us. He took our place. Even though he was the king, He became sin for us. He paid the price for us. So I come back to it. Do you want this king? You should. You should want a beautifully good king who delights in coming and seeing your evil and not destroying you for it, but giving you mercy and taking your place. Do you have that king? That's, again, the beauty of this king. He just wants you to ask you to be his king. Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you gotta do is ask. You gotta admit that you've, you need him to be your king. You've got to understand what that means for you. But have you asked? Is he your king? Do you delight in a beautifully good king who has satisfied God's wrath? And are you walking with that king? Are you delighting in letting him rule your life? Hey, if he can take care of God's wrath for you, then he can guide and direct your life. He can walk with you and help you in difficult situations. When you do mess up, he can, he can be there for you. He can, he, can, he can set some things right that you can't set right. Is he your king? Heavenly Father. We come before you acknowledging that we don't like to think about justice for ourselves. We don't like to think about all the times we've messed up and the justice we deserve. But it's so great to know you have provided a king, the one you've chosen, Jesus Christ the righteous. He became sin for us. He took care of, of, of our evil and the punishment that we deserved. And he paid the price to restore us back to you, to restore joy to you. Lord, we need our king. Our city needs our king. Our country needs our king. Our world needs our king. Oh Lord, help us to delight in our king. If there's someone here who hasn't made Christ their king, may they do that. May they call out to you, even today. In your son's name.